Well, welcome. Um, and also, if you weren't already aware, welcome to our podcast listeners. Um, it's great to have people listening to uh, what's happening here today, all the way over in Japan and Germany of all places. Um, Japan, where they're, I think they're meant to be having 32 degrees or something like that today, and so they're all nice and warm while we're all huddled here amongst our heaters and that sort of stuff in Preston, Victoria. If you've missed out on any of our messages, then I'd encourage you to to uh, have a listen um, to the Living Values series, listen to them on podcast. If you're not computer savvy and all that sort of stuff, that's okay. Let us know on those response cards that we talked about earlier, and what we can do is we can organise a CD copy of the message for you. Well, last week we were pleased to hear that Lynette is not a murderer. Isn't that a relief? You know, if you wondered about some dark and seedy past, then murder is not it. Um, I also appreciated the, the challenge that I felt when she reminded me about what do I choose to feed and what I feed grows, whether good or bad. What do I choose to feed? Do I choose to feed anger or do I choose to feed reconciliation? Today, we're up to living values number four and we uh, and we read about uh, the living values that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you've got your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Now, Matthew chapter 5, I'll be reading in a little bit from the New Living Translation. Now, back in 18, uh, sorry, 1989, a philosopher, uh, a philosopher Brian May, uh, some of you may know of the philosopher Brian May, Um, You may not know his name, but he was a member of the band called Queen. And he penned the famous words, I want it all. I want it all. I want it all. And I want it now. Now, I won't try and do a Freddie Mercury impersonation in that. But we live in a world of the instantaneous, where we um, look for instant gratification for our desires. Um, For the average teenager... If you want to know something, forget going to the library. You know, you just pull out your smartphone and you do the search on the internet and that will give you all the information you need. If you want to buy something, then it's likely that they will deliver. And if it feels good, then do it. Why wait? When it comes to our sexual behavior and marriage, we seem to want it all and we want it now. Approximately 75% of people surveyed believe that having an affair was wrong. Yet apparently 70% of all marriages experienced an affair. It's interesting to note that in Australia, in some surveys about um, our, our views on sex and sexuality, that over the last decade that, that there has been a shift towards less tolerance of sex outside of a committed relationship. Isn't that interesting? Over the last 10 years there has been an increase in the, um, the uh, level of people being less tolerant to sex outside of a committed relationship. In Jesus' day, there seemed to be some variation in the interpretation of what God's expectations were on this subject. In the ancient world, generally, it was held that a married man could have sex with another woman as long as it didn't involve another man's wife which would mean violating the rights of her husband. Apparently, it was not seen as adultery for an Israelite to have intercourse with a female slave or with a Gentile woman. 
Adultery, which involved infringing on the rights of another Israelite male, was of course wrong. So it's helpful that as we read through Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30, to keep those sorts of things in the back of our mind, some thinking that was around in Jesus' day. So we've got Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. As I said, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. If you haven't got your Bibles, then the words are on the screen behind me. You have heard the commandment that says, you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus commences today's section of his values teaching with a familiar traditional rabbinic introduction. You have heard the commandment. It was common for a rabbi to start in this sort of way. You have heard the commandment. People frequently learned through verbal communication, not necessarily by the reading of books or um, you know whatever was going around at the time as far as uh, some sort of uh, papyri writing or whatever it might have been. They didn't go about um, learning things by pulling out their tablet and looking up Google and Wikipedia and those sorts of things. Rabbis taught and when they taught and they spoke orally, they would never pit themselves against Scripture, preferring to support different interpretations by appealing to another earlier representative of the the rabbinic um, group. And so they'd refer to one rabbi or another rabbi, depending on who uh, looked at or supported the views that they wanted to also encourage. Perhaps quoting Rabbi Hillel, or Rabbi Gamaliel, or Rabbi uh, Shammai, or others. So when they hear Jesus start again, there is nothing out of the ordinary going on. Jesus is not only referring to the seventh of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 verse 14, you must not commit adultery, but his audience would also recall the punishment for adultery. According to Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10 in the New Living Translation, it says this, if a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the man and the woman who have committed adultery must be put to death. People around Jesus, settled as they were on the grassy side of the hill, would nod approvingly, yes, you are right, Jesus. A man sleeping with another man's wife is wrong, punishable by death. Unless maybe, of course, it was a slave or a Gentile, you know, those sorts of things where it didn't matter so much. That's okay. But then their complacency is jolted when Jesus follows up with his call. But I say... I remember about 20 years ago when I was at Bible college as an undergraduate being told in no uncertain terms that lecturers were not interested in my views. They wanted to look at my ability to do good research, quoting other rabbis as it were, and never daring to delve into the, but I say to you, 
Jesus, on the other hand, was prepared to go there. Fully aware of his identity as being the same Yahweh God who delivered the original law to Moses, Jesus is the most qualified to speak on the topic at hand. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I can just imagine this same crowd spread out in front of Jesus, feeling undecidedly uncomfortable, decidedly uncomfortable, shifting in their place nervously. Men, especially feeling self-conscious and perhaps even wanting to appeal against this new rabbi's claims. Women who had been the object of lust and been devalued were suddenly given status previously unheard of as Jesus smashes through one of their glass ceilings. Previously, the protection of women against sexual advances came through marriage, but now Jesus radically transforms the status of all women, not just wives. The committing of adultery was directly linked by the bonds of marriage, historically misinterpreting God's original intent. The marriage of a woman meant that she came under the protection of her husband, But if her husband strayed with a slave or a Gentile woman, then that had customarily been overlooked. But Jesus places the goalposts back where they belong, seeking to protect all women, not just wives, but also moving from the matters of action to those of intention, the intentions of the heart that Matt talked about as we shared communion. You start looking lustfully at a woman, married or unmarried, and you have committed adultery with her in your heart, even without her knowing. And without getting too Obi-Wan Ben Kenobi on us, that leads to the dark side, to death. Remember what Tessa read earlier in James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15? In James chapter 1, 14 and 15, in the New Living Translation, we read this, Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Now, unfortunately, some may try to find some wiggle room in what Jesus is saying um, and want to either dodge around some of his teachings or even take take some of his teachings to an extreme. And I want to nip that in the bud before it goes too far. I don't believe that Jesus is just speaking to men lusting after women. It can be men or women lusting and lustfully looking at other people, married or unmarried, which concerns Jesus. It can be men or women lustfully looking at other people, married or unmarried, which concerns Jesus. But also like anger, sexual desire is an emotion. It is a positive emotion that God has created in us. And it would be foolish to suggest that finding another person sexually attractive is sinful in and of itself. But as Lynette said last week, what will you feed? Feeding sexual desire for someone who is not your partner introduces the type of lust that brings about decay and death into your heart. Something that Jesus wants to protect us from. And faced with death, it is extraordinary the lengths that people will go to in order to live. If 
you were to do a quick, a quick search on the internet, as I did um, in the last few days, you will hear story after story of people when they are faced with death who will go to extraordinary lengths to live. People who would push through the pain barrier of cutting off their trapped arm, knowing that if they didn't, they would die. So passionately does Jesus want us to live a full life. He uses extreme language, stating that we should be prepared to pull out all stops to feed the good pure heart and to starve or to cut out that which causes decay. Matthew records Jesus as he continues in chapter 5, verse 29. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So does that mean that we rush to the kitchen after the service to get the, the closest meat cleaver or knife or whatever it might be? Of course not. Jesus wants to make a point. But I think it would also be foolish of us to push the point beyond what Jesus intended. Both here and also in Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 and 9, Jesus calls to, to choose, as it were, to fight for eternal life rather than to settle for death. When we place these passages in the context of Jesus' other teaching in Matthew chapter 15, verse 11, where he says, It is not what goes into your mouth that defiles you, you are defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. When we look at those sorts of passages, um, then if we were to take Jesus literally in the former ones, we would be chopping off ears, we would be sewing up mouths, we would be gouging out eyes, etc., etc. Do you really think for a moment that gouging out an eye would stop the activity of lust in your brain? Of course not. What Jesus is calling for us to do is to get serious about getting rid of sin. Don't treat it like a joke or minimize it, but actively pursue a change of heart, a change of behavior, a renewing of our mind, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. Jesus calls us to value something better than the immediacy of personal gratification, better than I want it all and I want it now. Jesus calls us to value something better than feeding our sexual fantasies with someone out there, objectifying, dishonoring and devaluing them from their place as created in the image of God. So what happens if I've gotten it wrong? Is there any hope for me if there's this decay, if I'm on this pathway to death? If we're struggling with lust or have committed adultery, is that it? Are we condemned to specify? spend the rest of our life with decay in our hearts? Or perhaps, as Matt encouraged us two weeks ago, do we need to draw closer into our relationship with Jesus? You know, often Satan tricks us into thinking that it is the last place that we want to go when we're struggling with sin, to find ourselves, as it were, before Jesus. But for a woman caught in the very act of adultery, it actually was the safest place for her to be. In John chapter 8, verses 3 to 11, we read, As Jesus was speaking, 
the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I go and sin no more. The richness of a relationship with Jesus, accepting his gift of salvation, is that there is forgiveness and healing. And because of our entering into this relationship with Jesus, he calls us to value the better by outworking a change of behavior. Regardless of your age and whether sexual desire is a part of your life or not, when we dig down deeper, God desires in us for us, the living value of self-control, valuing what is better, better for us and also better for the world around us. Self-control energizes sexuality. Self-control brings out value in relationship. Self-control brings out the best in us and breathes life into us. We are foolish without it. In Proverbs chapter 5, verses 21 to 23, we read this. For the Lord sees clearly what a man does, examining every path he takes. An evil man is held captive by his sins and the ropes that catch and hold him. He will die for lack of self-control. He will be lost because of his great foolishness. Through an ever-deepening journey with Jesus, through inviting him into our life. We discover in Galatians chapter 5 verse 23 that there is the fruit or blessing that comes from a living relationship with God. God living in us and us growing in self-control. But there is a role that we play in this as well. Self-control is like a muscle. We need to grow and develop it. Through practice, we strengthen it. For Lent, over several years, I've wanted to exercise and strengthen self-control. So for Ash Wednesday through in February through to Easter Sunday, I would give up and fast for something over that period. I have fasted from TV, from chocolate, from coffee, from sugar and sugary sorts of treats or extra sugar in my diet. And also one year with Mary's permission, I also fasted from sex. Each time, with God's help, I wanted to grow in self-control. I didn't want these things in my life to control me. I wanted to grow in self-control with God's help. Having strong self-control has proven again and again to be a value that makes life better. In the early 1960s, uh, or the late 1960s and early 1970s, there was a test that was led by psychologist Walter Michel. Then He was then a professor of Stanford University. With children ranging from the age of four to six, 
who were studied to see how well they exercised self-control. They were encouraged to experience some delayed gratification. Self-control through delayed gratification. They were offered the choice of one small reward now, immediately, or if they waited, they could have two lots of that reward, those two small rewards, a little bit later. You know, with those, those children that went through that study, they did follow-up studies uh, with them and also follow-up studies of children as well. And those children that were able to exercise self-control often did better at school and got better grades later in life. In a recent paper published in 2010 by Oten and Cheng, students who were strengthening their self-control muscle showed significant improvement in their self-regulatory capacity as shown by their enhanced performance. During exam time, when students would often be stressed out of their brains, um, these participants often reported significant decreases in smoking, in alcohol and caffeine consumption, and had increases in healthy eating, emotional control, maintenance of household chores, attending to commitments, monitoring of spending, and improvement in their study habits. So rather than being party poopers, rather than us being the fun police that is often attributed to Christians when it comes to the area of self-control, faced with the choice of committing adultery and lusting after others, which brings about death and decay, Jesus calls us to value something better. As we gather Matt's message from a couple of weeks ago and today's uh, passage that we've been looking at, Growing in self-control, valuing the better, we discover that, that it is life-giving, not life-taking. And when we blow it, we are not alone because we can come to Jesus like the woman we, we heard about earlier and find forgiveness, not can, condemnation. And isn't that better? Self-control is not easy, but it values what is better for us and in the world around us. There's a short video that we're going to show and that's going to lead us into a time of reflection. We're going to see the video and then I'm going to um, encourage us to pull out those response cards and on those response cards there's going to be a slide on the screen that will have us reflect on some questions that I'll read out as well for those on the podcast. But we'll go to the video now and uh, there's a little bit of audio with that as well. Tessa and Amy, how do you reckon you girls would do? You wouldn't need it. What about you, Amy? You don't like marshmallows, so it wouldn't be a temptation for you. There you go. How would you go? Self-control. You know, if we can develop that and grow that, it is a living value that helps us to value what is better. We've got the response cards there, and I'd encourage you to pull those out. And there's some questions on the screen. Have you been avoiding coming to Jesus about an area in your life that you need to get right? Another thing that you might want, may want to reflect on is what do you believe Jesus would say to you today out of what you've heard in our gathering together? And lastly, we would encourage you to perhaps write a prayer of commitment, a commitment to God in an area of life that you would like to grow in self-control. The team are going to play, and as they do, let's use this time to reflect on what God is saying to us today. God bless you.